0: Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. On each episode of the Organic Wine Podcast, I try to have guests who offer a different perspective on the very wide world of wine. From within the context of trying to promote and highlight thoughtful stewardship, protection, and even regeneration of planet Earth. I don't limit the world of wine to grapes, but include all fruit. From apples and pears and plums to prickly pears and mesquite. I don't get a lot of feedback about what those of you who listened to this would like to hear, but I, I do welcome it. And I'm wide open to requests and suggestions. So please email me at info@centraliswine.com to let me know if there's an episode you've loved or hated or a suggestion for something you'd like to know more about. Without that feedback, I'm going to keep spinning the roulette wheel of my imagination and hoping it lands on wherever you've placed your chips. But I'd love to hear from you. That's info at C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. Olivia Mackey and Mike Reese are my guests on this episode, and they are the owners of Redfield Cider Bar in Oakland, California. Redfield is one of just a handful of bars anywhere dedicated to cider, as well as natural wine, and Olivia and Mike give us an in-depth exploration of what it takes to open and run such a bar, during a pandemic no less. If you've ever dreamed of opening your own bar, this episode will give you the nitty-gritty of what goes into it, and you may want to change your dream. Or you may get the vital info you need to make your dream a reality. And even if you don't want to open a bar, Olivia and Mike will give you a vital perspective on what goes into being able to casually sit down and enjoy a glass of wine or cider at your local wine bar. You may end up enjoying that glass of wine a whole lot more. Enjoy! Olivia, Mike. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for doing this.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having
2: yeah. us. Thank you. We're excited to be here.
0: So can you guys talk about where you are and, and what you do? However you want to... Take it away. There you go.
2: <laughs> so uh, I'm Olivia and with my um, partner in life and business, Mike, we run Redfield Cider Bar and Bottle Shop in beautiful Oakland, California, um, which in January will have been open for three years so our third, third anniversary is coming up pretty soon. That's awesome. Almost. Oh, in exactly one month.
0: Isn't it that like most businesses fail within the first like 10 months or 18 months? Anyway, I think you made it past some major hurdles in small business life.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, what
2: was an interesting <laughs> hurdle was the moment we realized that we had been operating more under COVID measures than as a regular business that was a weird like whoa moment and now we've completely blown past that so needless to say it's been an interesting uh two two years uh, oh that's mm-hmm. i
0: i had that realization too i mean we started mid-pandemic started selling wine mid-pandemic and it was like wow man this is this is a real drag this is real and then things started opening up it was like oh my gosh like we can actually sell wine <laughs> like, it's yeah. not as bad as i thought did you guys have the same thing where it, it was it more difficult or less difficult during the opening and running during the pandemic? I I imagine as a bar, it was more difficult, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, we um, can talk about that. Oh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. We kind of had
1: to reimagine, you know, what the business was pretty dramatically. So, you know, we have always existed as both a bar and a bottle shop. Um, we have, you know, roughly 175 SKUs of bottled product. Um, but we're primarily a bar. We do a bunch of draft cider, wines by the glass, beers, that sort of thing, uh, and really work to create like a very cozy, like, you know, um, welcoming, friendly environment. And then all of a sudden it was like, no, like we're closing the doors. We're only doing bottle sales and like it's as, everybody's in and out as fast as possible. We're doing a lot of online sales and deliveries where we're just kind of like checking people's IDs at like arm's length. Uh, So it was kind of contrary to the way that we designed the business. So there was a lot of uh, reimagining what our goals were definitely through the pandemic, but uh, we figured it out.
0: Well, you yeah. smartly diversified your business strategy f- from the get-go, anticipating a global pandemic, I'm sure. Yeah. So, that you had <laughs> both, so you had both of those options to uh, to lean on in the event that you were shut down. Um, exactly. <laughs> very smart. It's why you guys are, have made it to three years, obviously. <laughs> business geniuses. Um. Well, that's cool. Well, tell tell me why you started this. And I, m- I mean, what, where, how did your life lead you to opening a cider bar and bottle shop in Oakland? What's your What's your story?
1: Yeah. Um, it's kind of a a natural thing for us. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Liv and I uh, met doing an event together. Uh, we were both working in the service industry and I'd been working in, in kind of the beer world. I worked for uh, a brewery, uh, uh, kind of beer focused bars and restaurants and then eventually found my way into the like specialty beer, or beer uh, wholesale world mm-hmm. and uh, Liv was doing like food education and a lot of uh, alcohol tasting events and, and uh, we ended up meeting each other through that and kind of sharing a passion for, uh, beer and wine and cider, just as drinkers. Um, I think both of us knew that we wanted to start our own business and the first place our head went was like, Oh, well we can open a, uh, beer focused place. But, uh, here in the Bay area in 2019, uh, there was, you know, a beer focused place on, on every corner pretty much. Um, and we'd gotten just more and more into cider. We actually, kind of first got into cider by meeting ellen and scott from tilted shed they kind of opened the door for us in terms of what what could be done with cider and started our explorations told us you know what we should be reading and who we should be drinking and um realized that it was really difficult to find the kind of ciders that we were excited by uh so it just kind of seemed like a natural choice for us to to open the place that we want to drink at
0: yeah I love that. And, and by doing that, promoting the people that you are befriending and falling in love with their ciders. Yeah. I imagine that's, that's very cool. Did you have a moment with cider? Like some people talk about with wine. So you can, I mean, I, first of all, I want to just comment. it, 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 it's interesting how it does seem like a lot of people come from the beer world into cider. I'm, I'm the opposite. I kind of came from the wine world into cider. Um, but I'm, I, I'm curious, did you have uh, an epiphany moment or anything like that, that, that just opened your eyes to the possibility of cider or a particular cider that sort of blew your mind and you're like, I yeah, want more of that?
1: yeah, for me, it was tilted shed graviva. Um, I was, um, overseeing the beer program at a kind of like beer focused fine dining restaurant in San Francisco. It doesn't exist anymore. And Ellen and Scott had just started tilted shed. This is like 2011 or so um and they brought in graviva um and tasted me on it um I, i'd kind of wanted to start featuring local ciders it was around that time the people were starting to ask for it and i realized it was a huge gap in my knowledge uh the ones that i had tried didn't really excite me very much and then they rolled in with graviva they're kind of like gravenstein heavy um blend that they produce and that was where I was like, Oh
0: yeah, there's something
1: going on here that I was not aware
0: of. Nice. What was it? I mean, what were the, what were the things? What Um, was the experience? If you can relive that.
1: Yeah. I mean like, like a lot of people, when they first come to cider, I think they think of it in terms of uh, those, you know, ultra sweet uh, heavily flavored ciders that you might find at the grocery store. And that was definitely my perception. And even, Some of the brands that had kind of aligned themselves as quote unquote craft producers uh, were making things that were, you know, maybe like slightly less sweet analogs of the same thing, you know, no, no respect paid to uh, how the fruit was grown or where it was grown or what varieties were grown uh, or how they could best highlight it through fermentation. Um, And, uh, you know, Ellen and Scott roll in with this thing that's like, okay, this is 50 percent gravenstein apples it's an heirloom variety that has this great history here in the north bay where we're from and 50 uh french bittersweet apples which are varieties that are just good for cider making and i'm like hold up like what are you talking about um, <laughs>
0: like, that's a new language yeah yeah
1: exactly uh and then you taste it and it's like got all this tannin and structure it's got earthiness like kind of a wild barnyardy character uh and just tons and tons of complexity that you wouldn't encounter from the stuff that uh I had previously been exposed to so It was uh, definitely an eye-opening experience.
0: Nice. Uh, And Olivia, did you have a similar one, a different one?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't want to make this podcast about Tilted Shed. (laughs) Um,
0: Well, that's right. That was
2: was definitely uh, Mike, you know, Mike was the one who really introduced me to cider and it was through a similar lens of like, oh, Olivia, you've got to try this. Um, And, you know, my, my background is Mike mentioned it's, it's in food and it's in agriculture. i spent some time farming um, on the West Coast and the East Coast. And the, one of the sort of like light bulb moments for me was understanding that it's truly an agricultural product um, and that there's a way to support farms and orchards with this value-added product that's delicious and you know can express terroir um, and really speaks to the place where it was made in this really powerful way, in the same way that wine does. Um, and so that was sort of this aha moment for me where I was like, oh, cider's, cider's wine. I get this. Um, this was not what I thought, you know, when I first started thinking about cider, when you think about more like mass produced grocery store stuff, um, it's, you know, it's, it's really a, a, a very beautiful and complex agricultural product.
0: What was your experience in agriculture?
2: So I spent some time um, farming in California and then also in northern Vermont. So two very, very different areas, I love um, that. Uh, mixed vegetable production uh, and have spent time working with um, and supporting farmers all over the country. Uh, so it's definitely a passion of mine. Yeah.
0: Was that a family thing that got you into that or, or were you interested from a young age or what? what, what led you?
2: Yeah. So it um, when I first moved to San Francisco, right after college, I was working for Byright Market and their nonprofit 18 Reasons, which is a community cooking school. And uh, Byright has a farm up in Sonoma. And we were doing a farm school for folks who live in the city to go off to Sonoma on the weekends and farm. It's like a little like one and a half at the time it was like one and a half acres. I don't know how big it is today um, organic farm. And so just getting folks hands in the soil to understand the connection between what they're eating and the work that goes into getting it onto their plate. Um, and that was just, I mean, it was, it was an incredible experience for sure.
0: Yeah. You're very fortunate. I think, I, I, I mean, I wish that experience on more people too. I, I think once you make that connection, you just can't unsee it. You know, once you know what, what goes into the, the food that, is available for you to buy in markets and grocery stores and things like that. It's, you just, you know, changes your perspective on the world really. And, absolutely. uh,
2: absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. that uh, our food system would look really different if there was like a mandatory, every, like every person for one month just has to work on a farm or even a week just to see the work that goes into growing something and getting it onto the table. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. Yeah.
0: That's actually kind of a brilliant idea i'm no no joke like that i could i could envision that not just being like a oh wouldn't it be good if like i mean look it's like israel you know mandates like a two-year military service i think the argument could be made that you know that even yeah like even a part of a year mandatory like public service in agriculture would be a brilliant thing for this country to (laughs) mandate. i think that's incredible that's really i hope this inspires somebody to start working in that direction Um, (laughs) mike what was your background before have you always been in in sort of bars and um yeah like straight out of college i
1: got a uh, gig um so you waited like until after college to get into bars (laughs) um actually got into sales immediately i did sales for uh lagunitas brewing company um because like okay can you imagine like a cooler sounding job for someone just graduating from uc santa barbara (laughs) Um, so yeah i i worked there for several years and and really enjoyed kind of being involved in in craft beer at that time, I think it was a real exciting period of growth for, for craft beer where, you know, when I was just getting out of college, you, you could get stoked to find like one, two, three bottles of, uh, craft beer on a restaurant menu. And then by the time I got out, Lagunitas was opening like their, uh, 500 barrel mega facility in Chicago. So it was kind of a cool time to be a part of that. Um, and then it was after that that I got involved in kind of the bar and restaurant scene, uh, having made some contacts as a salesperson.
0: Fantastic. So a little a little insider business knowledge that I'm sure has been very helpful in starting Redfield. Yeah, it's been interesting to have worked
1: for, you know, the supplier side with uh, Lagunitas and then uh, the retail side in bars and restaurants. And then uh, after that, I went to work for wholesalers. So. Uh, seeing kind of all aspects of of the industry uh was was really helpful and you know helping me to do figure you, out how it all works and fits together
0: and do you have any um revolutionary thoughts about the three-tier system <laughs> how much time uh, do you have adam yeah <laughs> uh
1: yeah no uh, this is a family podcast I'll, I'll <laughs> keep <them to> myself.
0: <laughs> um great <laughs> <laughs> but uh you you find yourself operating within it i i imagine um yeah not yeah trying to overthrow it currently with redfield
1: yeah not at all i mean it's actually kind of presented being so specialized insider has made uh has made it very apparent uh you know how different companies are operating within that system we work with uh including buying direct from producers we work with about 90 different suppliers mm. um which is totally nuts. Like, you know, it's it's not inherent to the three tier system that that's the case. It's just that you know cider is so specialized that a lot of producers, uh, you know, you can buy direct from. But if you're buying from a wholesaler, they might have like one cider in their book or two ciders. And if you right. want to hit a uh, five case minimum for for getting to uh, delivery or to best price, then then you're going to have to uh, figure out how to order efficiently from. From that many different folks, um, so it's it's presented a big challenge for how we do things.
0: Right, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and but good on you for doing that work. I mean, I mean, having ninety suppliers means you're you're buying direct at a better margin for those smaller producers. I imagine.
1: Yeah, whenever we can buy direct, uh, you know, those are those are some of my favorite relationships to maintain. Um, you know, very often it's it's the person that grew the apples uh, that's delivering the cider and that's a pretty cool cool thing to be a part of
0: yeah i love that and that again that connection to agriculture um is really a, <laughs> an important part of what i do as well i i'm curious where some of those values came from for both of you and and how those fit into redfield how do you like for example do you have guidelines by which you select those ciders that you work with that you you bring into the shop and 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 then even further the ones that you do by the glass i mean i guess that's a price consideration as much as anything else but um yeah i mean can you talk about how your values have guided the business
2: yeah absolutely um so we do have pretty strict buying principles on what we'll bring in um and they They vary. So they're different for our wine selection than our cider selection. Um, But, you know, it's the one of the biggest ones is really transparency. So the folks who are selling us their products need to talk about where the fruit came from, how it was made, what went in it, what didn't go in it, um, their intention behind creating it. Um, And you'd be amazed by. Uh, how that, how much that narrows the selection, <laughs> or maybe you wouldn't be amazed by that.
3: Uh, I was not. amazed by that.
2: Um, so that's, you know, that's a big one. Um, and, you know, as much as possible, you know, just following in line with, with Mike and I's personal ethos, we try to work with producers that have a lot of integrity when it comes to thinking about environmental impact and their agricultural um, work. So that's something that's really important to us. Um, And it might not be like, hey, everything's certified organic, and we can talk about why it's, that's really hard in cider to find a certified organic cider, um, or even really a certified organic wine in the United States. Um, But it needs to, again, go back to the transparency of, hey, these are, this is why we're growing this way. This is the challenge, these are the challenges that we're facing, and this is how we're dealing with it, um, with intentionality and thoughtfulness. Um, So that's a really big, big part of how we think about bringing stuff in. Um, we also have a a strict, no assholes policy, (laughs) um, (laughs) which, you know, if we know that there's a producer and maybe they make the best cider in the world, if we don't like, you know, the way that they treat other folks or some of their, you know, personal politics, things like that, you know, we don't, we choose not to bring that into Redfield. Um, and so that's something that's been with us, you know, you know, since day one, um, and then the other thing is we really want to an offer a range of, of products for folks. Um, and so, you know, while we are pretty dogmatic about, you know, transparency and things like that, that doesn't mean that we're only bringing in, um, you know, really specific ciders that just feature um, heirloom varietals that, you know, are harvested under the full moon or, or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, we have stuff that's dry and funky. We have stuff that's sweet and fruity. Um we really want to be able to to be a place where folks can come in and explore the really wide range of cider. It's part of the reason why I love cider is there's such breadth in what you can experience. Um and we want folks to be able to to experience that. Um and come in and find something that is really going to be suited to their palate.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I'm 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 a big fan of dry ciders myself personally but i know a lot of people who love the sweet and i agree i think it's like if you want if you want people to enter into your world you got to give them what they want and what they like and and that i think with cider especially can benefit from that i think that's really smart of you guys for doing that In, including the the full pantheon of uh, <laughs> flavor <laughs> yeah and
1: then, you know that includes like you know we we actually kind of try not to frame things from a dry versus sweet perspective because really in any well-made beverage, whether it's beer, wine, or cider, uh, you know, you're really, you're aiming for balance. Um, So when people say that they don't like sweet cider, it's usually because they don't like out of balance sweet cider. You know, we have a lot of uh, French poires, like almost universally has, you know, a fair amount of sweetness, but they're when they're well-made they're really elegantly balanced with acidity and structure and um so uh you know within the realm of representing everything that's out there we find really well made examples of each of those broader categories and uh curate from that perspective
0: and apora is a pair it's a perry right what we would call Indeed. a peri. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. and and i just learned from uh autumn and ezra at eves that there are just these unfermentable types of sugar in pair in pairs that make, you know, you have this sort of residual sugar effect. Anyway, regardless, uh-huh. if you go bone dry, there's just, you know, these, like, I don't even know what they are. I'm making it up, but like a sorbitol Sor- type. Sorbitol. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Nailed <laughs> you it. What I'm talking about. You got it, Adam. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool. Have you guys uh, considered starting a, your own sort of um, Pommelier school of certification? <laughs> um, definitely not the not. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: there there are some programs like that, that exist. There's, um, a national association of cider makers called the American Cider Making Association. Okay. Um, and they run some certification platforms for cider education. Um, so th- there's some stuff out there that exists like that. Um, but oh, not an undertaking God. we're willing to, uh, to go for
0: right uh you guys are busy enough i imagine yeah so and and i wanted to talk about that well let, let, let's let for those who might be you know dabbling in the idea of opening a bar whether it's a cider bar wine bar first of all i've i've heard that cider is hard to sell um from multiple cider makers How, what's your experience been of the truth of that or lack um part? yeah uh Liv, did you want to take that
2: yeah, sure. Um, we're in a, at a in a pretty unique position and that I think by setting <laughs> Oakland, ourselves <you> up, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, being in Oakland, I think is a great, I mean, we love Oakland so much, but, uh, it's also a very, um, you know, very like adventurous, thoughtful community of, of eaters and drinkers. Um, and, I mean, I feel like there's a couple of ways we could, we could tackle this. So I'll, I'll start and then Mike, maybe you jump in, but um, I mean, being in Oakland, I think was a very, a very good choice for us. And we're so grateful to the Oakland community because we have had, you know, three very successful years of being in business, selling a lot of cider. Um, and, but I, I think it's also helpful to really position ourselves as a cider focused spot. So in that way we can also be a little bit of a destination Um, And folks know when they can come in, they can taste a bunch of stuff and figure out what they like. Um, And we do have people who travel from all over the state to come to Redfield to be able to stock up on things and might come and get like two or three cases and then we'll see them again in two or three months. Um, And so to be able to provide that service for folks who are really dedicated to cider has been um, really an honor to be able to do that. Um, But beyond that, I mean, really, I think our business model is also built around just being a really cool bar. A space where people want to come and hang out. We have an incredible beer selection, an incredible wine selection. So not everybody who comes in even necessarily drinks cider, though that is the majority of what we sell.
0: Got it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Did you? Were you? Yeah. I mean, uh, like Liv said, we're as a retailer, we're in this really, uh, you know, unique position where we're we are super specialized on that. So we have a pretty captive audience of folks that are, you know, looking for exactly what we're doing and are willing to travel a little bit for it. Uh, but I also, you know, having worked in wholesale, um, one of my, my missions there was to get, you know, great cider out to more places, um, and brought in quite a few producers into California for the first time, including, uh, South Hill. I know you just spoke with Steve recently yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there was quite a long time and this is probably still true to some extent where, uh, cider makers, often package their ciders strictly in seven fifties as a way to kind of like denote quality and to note that it's something different than, uh, than the six pack stuff. Um, but yeah. frankly, like packaging cider exclusively in 750 milliliters is a non-starter for a lot of restaurants and a lot of bars and a lot of places that otherwise might be able to give you some good visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so it the, can be really hard to sell cider, especially the good stuff, um, right. just because a lot of folks aren't willing to take that risk or don't know how to sell that kind of format in the environments that they're presenting, uh, you know, sparkling wine or or still wine in. Um, so uh, it, it can be challenged for sure.
2: One thing that might be interesting to just add to what Mike said, too, is, you know, one thing that one, one struggle that cider is having right now, especially in the restaurant context, is that. You know, you'll look at a beverage list and there might be one cider listed um, on a menu that maybe has like five or 10 beers or 20 wines. And that one cider is supposed to represent an entire beverage category. Right. Um, and there's such a range in what cider can be. We found that some people will come in and be like, oh, yeah, I tried cider once. I didn't really like it. Um, but can you imagine like being a beer drinker and being like, oh, yeah, I had an IPA and that's what all beer tastes like? Or, um, It's just, it's so hard to, to have people really experience a range of what cider can be if there's not an opportunity to do that in restaurants Um, or in grocery stores where maybe there's a couple of SKUs versus, you know, hundreds of wines. Um, And on top of that, there's not a lot of staff education that's happening, right? So if there's a psalm at a table, they might be able to really talk about the wine that they offer, but do they have that same training to be able to talk about the cider, Um, In a grocery store, you know, is the person who's stocking going to be able to talk to you about the range of what's there? Um, So part of it, I think, is a little bit, you know, it's a little bit of an education issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Another reason for you guys to start that Pommelier certification. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Are you guys unique? Is there are there other cider bars or were there other cider bars when you started in the Bay Area? I mean, exclusively cider bars?
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, they, they, uh, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 There are actually there were two prior to existing and a third that opened, um, you know, right around the same time that we did. Um, there's one in San Francisco. It's been around for quite a long time, called Upsider.
2: Okay.
1: Um, they were, you know, very much kind of pioneers in, in the cider bar uh, world. You know, really nationally, they've they've probably been around for eight or nine years now. Um, and then there's one in in the South Bay, a uh, place called Cider Junction. And then, uh, yeah, we opened right around the same time as Crooked City Cider, also in Oakland. Uh, and then, actually, just recently, another one opened up uh, in in Albany.
0: Oh wow, fantastic! Yeah, so lots of cider
1: bars popping up these days.
0: That's <laughs> that's great. Well, I wanted to dig in a little with the business of of selling cider. How did you? Let's let's talk about opening a, a cider bar. Um, you guys, how long did you have to look? Until so you found the space that you are currently in, did, did you um, get lucky, or it's kind of have we an? We did eye get more? lucky.
1: I'd say we okay. were probably looking for about six months, um, and yeah, to varying degrees of uh, intensity with our search. Um, and we, you know, had been scouring all the commercial real estate websites, that sort of thing. Tried finding right. uh, brokers that would help us find the right space, and ultimately, uh, we were driving through Rockridge, which is one of our favorite neighborhoods. <laughs> Neighborhoods to hang out in, and uh, saw a for lease sign up in the window uh, right across the street from our favorite restaurant, ramen shop, and uh, just kind of went from there. We it was the very first place that we put in the letter of intent on, uh, first place we tried negotiating with the landlord, and, and we got in. Um, it was a little yeah. smaller than what we had seen as ideal, but the location was so good, and we really loved the neighborhood. It's Close to where we live. So, uh, you know, it's,
0: it couldn't say no. How small is small? Uh, it's only about 800 square feet. Oh, wow. Do you have any storage at all? <laughs> <laughs> not nearly enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, and did you have any issue? I, I mean, for for somebody who isn't maybe not familiar, but it's not like leasing, like like if you were going to open a restaurant even or that didn't have alcohol or, or a retail shop, other than the time it takes you to sort of fix the space up to your specs to open shop, you don't really have to wait. You, you can start a lease and open up, but when you are an alcohol business, you have to rely on zoning and conditional use permits and licensing and permitting how long was that process for you guys and 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 how did that work out as you were trying to negotiate the lease
1: yeah it's funny that you'd ask that because we it was an interesting challenge for us um when we first expressed interest in this space um we kind of heard some feedback that folks in the neighborhood were pushing back on any new alcohol related businesses Uh, so we were really concerned about that when we first tried to pursue this space and actually even before we'd begun negotiations with the landlord like before we'd even, before we'd gotten close to signing a lease we met with like the neighborhood planning council that had members of the public there and presented our idea we brought bottles of really nice looking cider and poured it for anybody that was there in the meeting and like the upstairs of the uh rockridge library um and just kind of like said, "You know, here's who we are. it's an alcohol related business, but it's gonna be a real classy joint. you know we're a couple of nice people, we're not gonna be uh you know a blight on the neighborhood. um let us do this <laughs> uh, and you please, know please. I think we yeah, we got kind of uh there was a little bit of pushback, but really not nearly as much as there would have been, I think, if we hadn't uh taken that step of like." you know, if you're going to be concerned about it, let's talk like we can assuage any fears you have about what we're doing. It's a totally cool spot. Um, and then yeah, negotiations with the landlord took a really long time. Uh, it was, it was over, over a year. It was like a year and four months from the time we went to that first planning council meeting to when we actually got open. Um, a lot of that was lease negotiations. Um, a lot of it was conditional use permit stuff like you mentioned. Um, The actual alcohol license wasn't too big of an issue. Um, And then, yeah, we did the build out, which we did it without a general contractor. Um, Our brother, uh, Spencer, and I kind of oversaw the actual building of the space, which meant trying to figure out Oakland's permitting and that whole process, which probably cost us some time, but also saved us a lot of money. So um, it took a long time, but I think we did the right thing.
0: Nice. I, and yeah, that sounds I mean th- that's a good uh, reality check for anybody thinking about just opening a bar. <laughs> I think in terms of timing like um and you do. I, I imagined you had to like how I, I, the the catch 22 the chicken and egg conundrum is that like signing a lease before you know that you are going to get a permit. How how did that work out in reality for you?
1: Um I think we Was had like a, a col-
0: there's yeah, a clause a-
2: in our contract with the Got it. Landlord. You
0: just negotiated mm-hmm. a sort of like I, an out clause in case it didn't it all fell apart and you could just be like Yeah.
2: And it. there was a time frame, I don't remember exactly, but maybe it was like within 6 months or something like that. Um Got and it. we also negotiated so we weren't paying uh rent for part of it while we were waiting for things and you know there's a lot of there was a lot of negotiating and went back and forth and actually, I actually have to say we we really like our landlord. Um you know it it took a long time but we think it was really fair. um, And we learned a lot in that process. And also learned. so for anyone who's interested in starting a business, always negotiate, like, stand up for what you think is right, push back on it, you know, don't be mean about it, but be firm. Um, And we had a lot of back and forth. And we're able to, to land in a spot that felt, I think, really good to both parties, which ultimately is what everybody wants.
0: Yeah, I think I, I love negotiating contracts, strangely. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I think, I think it comes from having worked with um, some really brilliant lawyers and you realize like, it's not personal at all. Like you just, you know, you, there is a process to it and you go through it and, you know, yeah, you, you, it is confrontational because you, You're asking for this. They're saying no. They're asking for this. You're saying no. But it's all dispassionately confrontational. So, like, it's there's no 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 feelings need to be involved. You know, there's uh you know just leveraging and and making it work out for both parties to be relatively happy at the end. It's I I love that process. Strangely, Um, (laughs) but yeah, it, it is a great learning experience to go through that and. So yeah, it it sounds like you had a a pretty good, probably, I would even say average length time over a year to get into the space. Um, And then you were off and running or how did it, how did you open your doors? What was, what went into that?
2: Definitely off and running. I mean, when we were first looking for a space, we actually wanted something that was turnkey, like that, you know, already had a bar built out. And we just, as Mike alluded to, we just couldn't find anything. Um, That really fit our, our needs. And so we ended up the space that we went into in Rockridge was an empty box. (laughs) And so we had to do a full build out on it. And Mike is sort of, I think, being very humble and just saying, Oh, we, you know, my, my brother Spencer, we, we, we we just knocked it out. It was a lot of work. Um, it was a lot of man hours. It was a lot of us working late nights and, um, you know, doing drywall and painting and, and Mike and my brother Spencer built the entire bar, um, and it looks beautiful. Uh, and uh, it almost killed us. <laughs> <It> was,
0: <laughs> now, were you guys working uh, so at the same time? Other jobs? Were you working other I jobs? Wa-
2: I was working full time somewhere else. Um, so I was doing, you know, evenings and weekends there. And Mike at that point had left his job and was working full time on the space. Okay. Um, and, you know, it. it's funny because when you think about opening a business, we knew that we would, once the doors were open, we knew how to run a bar. This like, you know, we have been in the hospitality industry for over a decade, like we've got this, but no one prepared us for the actual getting getting to the opening. Um, You know, (laughs) negotiating the lease, uh, dealing with the city, getting so frustrated, we had a bunch of hoops, we had to jump through to get our alcohol license. And there's not, you know, it's not something you can just Google, (laughs) you know, going to the city planning department, them being, you know, saying, we're not going to be able to look at your space for eight months and having to push back. I mean, there was so much back and forth, and no one can really prepare you for that. Um, And so we were Exhausted and frustrated leading up to our opening because it was so much work to get there. Um, and when you think about opening a business, you're again, you know, we knew we would be great once the bar was open, but we didn't know about that year leading up to it that that was not our skill set, which was negotiating with the city of Oakland. Um, and so Mike is being so graceful about it, but he just he really ran that that project and um, did a fantastic job with it. <laughs>
1: You now, don't count you... the constant panic attacks and meltdowns. Yeah.
2: There were tear, tears were shit Tears right. were shed.
0: Short tempers, uh any anything <laughs> any grumpy days. Um did you guys use an expediter for your permitting or anything like that? Or did you just charge uh it? no, yeah, we didn't. Um we Well done. The... Wow.
1: yeah the we had kind of considered getting a person to consult with us on the alcohol license but because we have a type 41 license which is relatively simple uh you know we didn't want to spend three grand or whatever it was going to cost us um yeah you know especially when it was like it's relatively easy to figure out we just had to do it and it took time um right we did you know expedite some permits wherever we had the opportunity to but um it was really frustrating it was that we getting open towards the end of the year and having those final inspections they weren't even doing expedited inspections that sort of thing um at the city level because they were so booked out so it was really just a matter of like honestly going down to the to city hall and and bugging people until they gave us the attention that we needed
0: Wow. and were you is it how long were you paying rent before you were i mean before you were able to open your doors
1: um, only a Was few it?
0: months. I think honestly, yeah, three to remember.
2: months. Yeah, three months. I think months we started
0: right. in like mid September or something
1: like that, and we opened on January sixth.
0: How would somebody put any of this into a business plan? Did you guys do a business plan?
2: Mm-hmm. Yep, we did a. We built out a financial model to, to just sort of go through. You know what all of our what what, what all of our anticipated costs would be. What we thought mm-hmm. our income would be. Um, you know, figuring out cost of goods sold, things like that. Um, and then we also just wrote a business plan, which was really helpful um, because we did get outside investors for a project. Um, and so if you are thinking about um, you know, bringing in outside investment, a lot of, you know, it's pretty standard to be able to present a business plan and say, this is what we're gonna do and this is how we're gonna do it. Um, I also loved the process of writing the business plan and doing the financial modeling because it makes you ask really tough questions of yourself. Yeah. Um, and really dig into the, how are we going to make this happen? Um, and then I loved the, the process of pitching investors too, because you really have to defend your, defend your work and say, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it and answer really tough questions. And I think the process of going through that made us stronger, uh, stronger business owners, right? Cause you have to have conviction in what you're doing.
0: Oh, yeah. A, uh, and we actually, meeting. uh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I'll, I'll come back to it
1: i was gonna say we we actually were able we had some friends that opened um you know businesses in the alcohol world and businesses in oakland that were really generous with their their time and um their their own business plans and that helped us really get like genuinely accurate um estimates in place for the actual build out and equipment and you know, oh, we didn't think that we would need this and here's what it's going to cost. So that was really helpful in getting our business plan dialed into a point where it was actually useful instead of just kind of a
2: abstract Theoretical, document. Theoretical, yeah, numbers.
0: Great, yeah. And so you you did end up using investors. This isn't all on your own.
1: Yeah, the, we, uh, we did, yeah. We have uh, uh, something like 12 small number investors that are all largely from our family and friend uh, extended group
0: yeah and and any thoughts about working with or not working with investors from your experience now would you do it over again yeah i think
1: because most of them are pretty friendly with us um it's you know it's not a it's not a super uh intense relationship and we're also not talking about really big dollar values so uh it helped us get over the hump for where we needed to be to get the doors open and have enough cash on hand to be uh, starting the business from a healthy perspective uh, so certainly not something we regret
0: nice and do you what, what do you think your investors are looking for from you at the end of the day are they gonna cash out at some point do you hope to sell the business what's the what's the end for them how do you uh attract an investor Yeah,
1: I don't think this is the kind of business that's going to see, you know, the like 10x (laughs) return that some of these folks are thinking of, especially considering we're, you know, uh, not far from Silicon Valley, where where those are like numbers that people like to dream on. Um, Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, a generally very friendly relationships from folks that like, uh, like supporting us and like hanging out at the bar. And uh, it's, it's not a they want it's to see a, some
0: small percentage return. On sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rather than losing the money, um, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Um, how, in so let's get into the part that you guys actually love and are are good at. That this wasn't this huge learning experience. The running of the bar. What 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 are the what are the keys to doing that? And I have a random question that just popped into my head, but you are by the glass stuff. So are you opening bottles for that? Do you have a, like a Coravan type thing or are you doing kegs? How are you doing your by the glass?
1: Uh, for the, for the wine specifically or, or, yeah, cyber or for, too?
0: for anything sparkling?
1: Yeah. Um, so we, for sparkling things, we generally just are, if we're doing bottles of sparkling things, then we're able to sell through them quickly enough to, have them maintain freshness, you know, it's like six ounce pours four bottle or four pours a bottle. Basically we can do that in a day. Um, and, uh, you know, if we want to feature something that's like a little bit, uh, we're a little bit less certain about, maybe we'll pour it as like a, by the glass special on Friday or Saturday where we have much higher volume of people coming through. So, um, yeah, we do. We're able to kind of sell through stuff fast enough that, uh, it's not a big concern. Uh, we also have 16 drafts. So most of the cider that we do is on draft.
0: Oh, okay. Um, yeah, nice. Okay. So I'm uh, sorry. That was the real specific random question.
1: What,
0: <laughs> what are, what are the skills that you guys have that, that make you successful at running a, a bar business?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, Mike and I are such extroverts where, we love being around people. We love being in the community. And I think anyone who is drawn to hospitality has, you know, at least part of their mentality is in that same sort of ethos. Um, and when we were thinking about opening Redfield, we really just wanted it to be a welcoming space to introduce folks to cider. Um, and so to be able to create an environment where someone can come in and say, I've never had cider before. And we get to curate that first experience for them, which has happened a lot. Um, It has been, I mean, it's been such a treat because people walk away and be like, I didn't know cider could be like this. I didn't know how great it was. I didn't know there was such a range. Um, And so for, we were just so excited about having the opportunity to do that. And we sell a lot of flights, so smaller four ounce pours of, you know, anything we have on draft, Um, people can sort of build their own. We also have preset flights that really show a range of cider. Um, which is far and away, the thing that we sell the most, it's our most popular, popular way to experience cider. And so, you know, people can really have a a tasting experience and, and, um, I don't know, we were just so excited about being able to do that.
0: Yeah. What would you say to me if I said, if I walked in and said, this is my first time?
2: (laughs) One of our first (laughs) questions is usually, what do you like to drink? Yeah, um, you know, it, it could be, you know, Okie Chardonnay or like double IPA or it could be like lemonade. You know, <laughs> what, what do you like to drink? <laughs> are you are you into like coffee? Like what kind of coffee do you like to drink? Yeah. And trying to understand someone's palate yeah. um, and asking some follow up questions and sort of narrowing in on, OK, I think they're going to like, you know, you know, Spanish cider, which is going to be like still and funky and sour, or, you know, they're going to like something that's going to have like a little bit more sweetness and like focused on, you know, a fruitier, fruitier cider. Um, There's just such a range. So trying to like hone in on what someone drinks normally is at least a good like benchmark to get us started. Um, But it's always a conversation.
1: Yeah. One thing that's great about owning a cider bar is that you know, nobody has preconceived notions about what a cider bar should be uh, when they walk in. And a lot of the people that come in are coming because they're excited about like exploring everything that cider has to offer. So, uh, you know, we can pour a flight for folks and they're really excited to try everything that's that's available to them, even if they don't love all of it. You know, I feel like a lot of people might go into a wine bar with a certain set of expectations and they're really disappointed if they don't like everything that they're presented with. Whereas with cider, you know, people are like have often have no idea that that range exists. So just tasting the full breadth of what's out there is really exciting for everybody involved. Again, even if they don't love every sip that they have. And then from there, it's like, okay, here's what you liked. Here's what I, why it tastes like that. Here's some other stuff that you might enjoy from that perspective. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really fun to be working with uh, customers that, Uh, are excited for the explorer exploratory act, I guess.
0: Mm. uh, so what you're saying is your success is dependent on there being a very low bar set for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's (laughs) certainly not the way we like to think of it. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, that, that is really cool. I think the, the open-mindedness and exploratory element is kind of what's fun about cider. It's, there there hasn't been a an established uh court of masters pommeliers kind of thing that where you that comes from the old country and yeah and ciders
1: yeah i mean cider in the u.s is really free of a lot of like tradition that might cause producers to to stick within a really tight lane you know there's it's uh, exploratory for the drinkers but it's also uh you know a, a realm of exploration for the producers too uh, especially here in the US where cider doesn't mean any one thing so you can really create uh you know some some wild stuff uh even within you know producers that have a perspective like i want to make zero zero cider from heirloom varieties like that's that's still a whole range of stuff so um yeah, it's, it's kind of the Wild West and that's really exciting.
2: I think it's also, um, you know, we, we've been so excited about also like the confluence of cider and natural wine. I know we haven't really talked about wine at all yet um, in this interview, but... Uh, you know, we do sell natural wine. It's something that we're excited to, to be a part of that community. And there's so much crossover between cider and wine in California right now. Yeah, um, We sell a lot of co-ferments and there's so much experimentation happening in natural wine um, in terms of, you know, like maybe adding some other fruits or they playing around with fermentation styles or working with apples and um, working with pears and, you just the, the freedom and the experimentation that comes from that. It's just, it's exciting to be able to see sort of like this whole new world of, of what fermented beverages can be um, without yeah. sort of like the restriction of like wine is defined as this, you know, right. or cider is defined as this. Um, we really welcome that, that, that freedom of expression.
0: Yeah, that's great. I, I, I mean, I, I am way out on that uh, bandwagon trying to, incorporate you know even other fruits beyond the what has been the traditional fruits here you know in America um, for the last you know 50 years or hundred years because before that we were just fermenting whatever we grew locally so down here it's very different fruit and things than you know in apple country uh, for example and uh, I love that all I love that this space is opening up I, I don't know if there's a word that we can use beyond cider and wine because it seems like the the category is already, you know, bursting at the seams and expanding beyond those narrow words, even uh, unless we just take one or both to mean a huge range of everything. Uh, you know, just <laughs> make it an all-encompassing word.
1: Yeah, um, there's a there's like a movement in the cider world that's really controversial. which there's uh, hashtag cider is wine. We don't really need to get into that whole can of worms necessarily, but yeah, I mean, by definition, cider is wine. Wine is fermented fruit juice, so we often use that. And we hear a lot of people talking about uh, fruit wine as a term uh, to refer to, uh, often referring to co-ferments of grapes and alternative fruits. But uh, yeah, it's a little, little redundant, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, where I grew up, uh, you know, we had a lot of fruit wine. Because we didn't, we don't do grapes very well in Pennsylvania, oh. uh, so it was whatever else was fruit—blueberries and you know those kind of those kind of things. Um,
1: Liv's got some strong feelings about strawberry wine.
2: <laughs> I grew up in Missouri, and strawberry wine is a thing.
0: <laughs> and do you like it?
2: Well, <laughs> uh, it depends on if you like a, how throbbing of your headache you want to have the
0: next day. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much because oh, really? um, you just it's sugar water right with flavored mm-hmm. with strawberries basically um yeah 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 <laughs> yeah that's I, th- I mean that's the problem with a lot of fruit is it's like it, to ferment it by itself you end up with something that just can't you know doesn't end up being much um we did yeah. try
2: a very interesting blueberry wine from maine blew it recently which we had on the shelves which was like so complex and fascinating and i've heard um, about not it not at all what i thought fermented blueberries would taste like is really good
0: and aren't 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 they wild blueberries that they're using for that do you know yeah exactly Uh
1: uh-huh yeah i guess they're just those wild apples just or wild uh, blueberries like everywhere up in maine
0: yeah it's nuts it's it's yeah like you can get lost in blueberry fields up there or blueberry bogs or whatever they are um yeah it's perfect well what are some of the realities uh Maybe the, the harsh realities, I guess, is what I'm fishing for of, of running a bar, of being, you know, not just an owner of a bar, but the the people that actually have to show up every day and, you know, do the day to day. Yeah, I mean, it, it's challenging. Uh,
1: there's definitely like new challenges every day. I think like a lot of people that have a preconceived notion of what owning a bar looks like don't realize how much of it is like, you know, fixing little junk that's breaking all the time and running around (laughs) to different stores to restock on, uh, napkins or paper bags or, uh, anything else that you might need to run day to day operations. Um, you know, there's, there's stuff like vandalism you have to deal with. There's, um, there's all kinds of BS that's not related to the actual, uh, you know, alcohol involved or the actual stuff that you're passionate about that kind of sucks to have to deal with. Um, you know, you might, on your day off, get a notification that your alarm's going off. And like, that's something that's going to derail your whole day. Um, (laughs) So being, being a a responsible business owner, it means being on all the time Um, and, you know, not, not taking long vacations and not, not uh, doing a lot of things that normal people might take for, for granted. Um, But there's also stuff like, you know, working with 90 suppliers. That's a, a crazy challenge every week and, and not, Burying us, burying ourselves in, in backstock so that it screws up our PL sheets and makes it so we can't see customers anywhere because there's boxes everywhere. So there's you know there's a there's all kinds of challenges. Um, <laughs> I think but then there's
2: also some classic challenges too, like labor. Right, labor is the most expensive part of running a business. At least it's the most expensive part of running our business. Um, and true to any hospitality, you know ind- industry job, it's there's a lot of turnover. A lot of people coming and going, and and Mike and I take training really seriously, Um, and when we hire someone, there's no prerequisite to to know a lot about cider from the get-go, because let's be honest, who would we be able to hire? (laughs) it's still such an esoteric (laughs) beverage in a lot of ways um so we have a really long training period and we're very hands-on and we're there every day and we're very involved in the operations um you know because redfield's our baby and we care so much about it um but there's a lot there's a lot that goes into to managing staff um and that's also maybe not something folks think about but you know, if you are going to be, if you're going to be the owner and also be the manager to make sure that you've got the skill set and the training to be able to, to take care of your staff and create a safe and healthy work environment for them. Um, you know, that's something that I think more restaurants need to have training around.
0: What does your day look like? Are you, are you working 12 hour days, 15 hour days? What's, what's a, a, a standard day look like for you?
2: Um,
1: yeah, it varies for each of us, uh, day to day. Um, I'll say like my day usually starts with with getting in uh, a couple hours before we open to uh, start receiving products and you know clean what it needs to be cleaned and make sure that everything is stocked or it needs to be stocked that sort of thing yeah. uh, when new products arrive and we do I would say we have on average about eight to twelve brand new products every single week um, that means you know photographing them writing descriptions getting them priced getting them on the website. Uh, Making sure they're like categorized correctly on the website, making sure that there are, uh, you know, notes that you can provide to staff to make sure they're up on everything. Uh, So there's a lot of stuff setting the stage prior to getting open. Um, And then, yeah, getting the shop open, making sure the staff that's there is feeling, uh, you know, comfortable with whatever new products are there, um, ready to work the day for, uh, you know, just kind of like getting into the swing of things, making sure they're up on, you know, okay, this keg changed to this, this wine is going to be changing over to this. Like we have a special on this, that sort of thing. Um, So it's a lot of just kind of like setting the stage and making sure we're giving our staff what they need to, to succeed. Um, Yeah. Liv, you have a little bit of a different perspective and different, different day to day.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's more, um, you know, taking photos for social media, writing newsletters, paying bills, making sure that what we were invoiced is what we got and it was priced accurately, um, you know, mm-hmm. managing different relations and um, and just checking in with folks, making sure that their schedule's good. If someone can't, you know, make a shift, making sure it's covered by someone else. I mean, it's a, it's really a million and one little things. Um, something breaks, we have to fix it. We ran out of something. We need to order more food. We need to make sure that everything's stocked appropriately. Um, it, it, yeah, Adam, it's really a million and one little things.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, no, running a small business, it never ends all these little things. Um, and, and it it seems like there's those little things are there regardless of the business. <laughs> there's no way to avoid that. Um, Liv, you brought it up, uh, earlier and I thought maybe this would be a good time to ask about it. Why, why is it hard to find certified organic cider?
2: Oof, Mike, maybe you should, uh, maybe you should take this one. <laughs>
0: um,
1: yeah, sure. I mean, it's not impossible, but, uh, you know, like in wine, uh, in the U S you aren't getting certified organic. If you have any added sulfites whatsoever, um, not to mention that it can be really expensive to get organic certification, um, both, you know, in, uh, an agricultural setting and as a winemaking facility, um, you know, a lot of the producers that we work with are really small. So uh, getting that certification in a winemaking facility and having those restrictions on your winemaking just aren't feasible. Um, I would say the majority of what we work with across both wine and cider uh, contains fruit made with uh, either organic or biodynamic practices. Um, but the certification is a, another hurdle altogether.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I'm actually going to do a podcast about this a little bit because it's it comes up so often about the cost of of it the realities of that it's it's, sometimes i don't think it's actually the cost that's a big deal but there even if you get your orchard or vineyard certified um you can't put it on the label so it's sort of this without getting your winery certified and then if you have your winery certified it, it adds all these other things that may be actually onerous and expensive just by virtue of the hurdles that you have to jump through. And so then it's like, well, what's the point of getting certified at all if I can't even talk about it on the label in a, in a way? Yeah, likely? exactly. So it yeah, it's, it's, it's a real interesting thing. Um, and even if you even... have
2: customers that come in and say, you know, I'm looking for something that has orga- certified organic fruit or organic practicing fruit in it. And the nice thing about, you know, the process that Mike and I go through for bringing any product in is we know all about it. And so I can say, okay, let me point out everything that has certified organic fruit. It's not going to say it on the label, but I know this because I know the producer. And right. so to be able to have that sort of knowledge and intimacy with the processes that go into making the cider, you know, I think in a lot of ways, it's a real luxury that we have to be able to do that because it doesn't become a burden at Redfield. Whereas, you know, if you're in a grocery store and you don't see organic anywhere on it. You don't have the opportunity to promote that. Um, you know, it could be it could be a lost sale.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, good point. Well, I, I, this has been super helpful. And maybe just as a, a light ending question, what are you guys drinking these days, personally? Oh man,
1: so much. <laughs> what aren't you drinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, you know, we have you know, eight to 12 new products every single week. Um, so often what we do is, you know, we, we wait till we can get a nice uh, group of the staff together. Uh, usually, you know, Friday and Saturday when we have a bunch of people on the floor and, and we just start opening bottles. Um, so we're often tasting new stuff. Um, this week we tasted a new cider from far West cider called sharing is caring that we're featuring in our cider club. Um, we're also, we're also, that same cider club bag featuring a uh, cider from a really small producer here in Richmond called gearhead. Um, so we tasted through those with the staff. Um, you know, we got a couple new ciders on draft this week. We had a cool co-ferment from a producer called botanist in barrel that we had put on draft. So it's fun tasting through that. We got the new vintage of the Lapalu uh, Beaujolais Village. So opened a bottle of that and yeah, just kind of, uh, lots of new products. Um, it's uh, you know it's an exciting, exciting thing to have new things coming through the door all the time.
0: Yeah, no doubt. That's a, almost a reason to go through all the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, how do people get in touch with you? Find out more. Where are you? You know, what are, what's the best way to to buy some of your ciders and and find out more about you? Follow along.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um. So we're online at Redfield Cider. We're on Instagram. Um, we also have a Facebook page. Um, and if you go on our website, redfieldcider.com, you can sign up for a newsletter where where we're constantly, you know, featuring interesting bits of cider information and, uh, talking about what's new in the shop. Um, as Mike mentioned, if you live in the Bay area or actually really anywhere in California, we do have a cider club and we can ship cider within the state of California, but unfortunately not outside of the state of California. Um, Yeah. Or you could come and visit us in uh, in beautiful Oakland.
0: Right on. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. I mean, this is just enormously helpful information uh, and perspective for anybody sort of thinking about this, uh, or or even just curious about what goes into them showing up at a bar and enjoying a nice glass of cider, um, or wine or whatever it is. You guys have really uh, pulled back the, the curtain on uh, how the sausage gets made. I I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, no worries. Thanks Thanks for for having having us on. Pleasure to talk to you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time and attention and don't take it for granted. The sponsor for this episode, as well as the entire podcast, is my winery, Centralis Wine. Uh, We're based here in South Central. We are growing our own estate wines on our tiny little lot in South Central Los Angeles, uh, which we call Crenshaw Crew. And if you'd like to know more about us and get access to our extremely limited grown in South Central wines, which will be coming out in the spring of 2022 for the first ever vintage, please join our email list at centraliswine.com that's c-e-n-t-r-a-l-a-s wine.com we are on social media but we are moving our focus to our email list in a way for social from social media for many reasons and so that is the place to go to get deals and discounts and updates as well as first access to our very 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 limited releases C E N T R A L A S Wine dot com. Thanks so much and enjoy.